Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, the Amateur Gourmet. And if you've been listening to me for a while, you'll know that for years I've been trying to pitch the New York Times food section articles, and for years I've been ignored. Um, I've had guests on here like Ali Slagle and Eric Kim, who are writers for the New York Times food section, and I joked with them that I've been trying to get Emily Weinstein's attention for a long time. Well, it turns out this week my guest is Emily Weinstein, the food and cooking editor of the New York Times, and she was so generous with her time. Not only did she talk to me for an hour, but she also laid it out for me. How do you pitch a news article to the New York Times food section um, or a column or a recipe? And so I found this so helpful. And if you're an aspiring food writer or somebody who's also tried to pitch the New York Times food section, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, here is my talk with Emily Weinstein. All right. Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I'm a big fan of your work, so it really means a lot to me. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm I'm happy to be here. Well, I have... I mean, I'm just going to cut right to it. I have I have emailed you many times <laughs> over the years <laughs> trying to pitch an article. And I will be the first to admit, I don't know anything about pitching. I'm not a, I don't consider myself a food journalist. I think I'm more of an essayist or like a personal memoir kind of person. So I think, you know, I mean, what I want to get to eventually in this conversation is like, what makes a good pitch? You know, what are the things that you get, you know, where you're like, oh, I have to publish this. Um, but before we get to that, I thought I would just ask you some general questions about the New York Times cooking. Or is it New York Times cooking or New York Times food? Oh, hot topic. Well, not hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's overstating it. Comes up a lot. So um, uh, New York Times cooking, NYT cooking is our recipe product. That's the app. Um, you know, that's like the separate subscribers experience. Um, New York Times food uh, sort of is the department that encompasses all of it and includes all the work that runs, you know, in our Wednesday section. So all our investigations, our restaurant criticism, our features about the world of food, um, that all is, is part of the food section. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad I got that cleared up because I was always a little confused. Um, well, in terms of like how far ahead you are, I mean, one thing I was curious about is like, you know, obviously, like I know a lot of food magazines and newspaper food sections start doing their Thanksgiving stuff like months ahead. So I'm curious, how far out are you right now with the stuff that you're working on? Um, it really depends on what the stuff is. Um, but for instance, I'm pretty certain if we were a food magazine, we would be like cooking the turkeys and closing the issue uh, right now. Mm -hmm. But really? I'm still like making the lists of and talking to everybody and getting uh -huh. everyone's ideas. And we're all, you know, everyone is sort of meeting in different configurations and still putting it together. So it's safe to say we are way, way, way behind food magazines. Um, you know, but I will say, you know, I remember... I worked at the Times for a long time, food section. And, you know, I remember we used to plan Thanksgiving in like September or October. I mean, it was mm. not a big production. So the mm -hmm. fact that we're even talking about it in July is, uh, you know, a step forward for us. Because <laughs> uh, it is. That's it's good. a really, really big lift. And, you know, we really want everything to look great and be great and be useful to people. So, um, but we're, we're doing that planning now, like in real. Got depth. it. 
So in terms, though, in general, though, when we're not talking about Thanksgiving, I mean, are the articles you're currently overseeing right now for like this upcoming Wednesday? Or I mean, how far ahead are you in terms of stuff that you're overseeing? We are indeed. So um, we are to, on tomorrow's Tuesday. Uh, tomorrow morning, we'll close the Wednesday print section. You know, it's the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So it goes to print right. on Tuesday night and, and if, and you know, it'll be online, of course. And if you want to buy it in print, you buy it on Wednesday morning uh, at mm-hmm. the crack of dawn. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm pretty well focused on, um, you know, or, or rather we all are, I, I do a lot of stuff and we have a great team full of wonderful editors and reporters. You know, we're kind of looking at the next Wednesday section and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we're very much digital first, but print has very specific needs, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there's a very specific deadline. It has to go to the printer at a certain time. So so we do tend to sort of think in terms of, of print it, for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, yeah, we're thinking about the stuff that will be like publishing, you know, next week and the week after Got that. Mm-hmm. And we're looking ahead at the rest of August. And I definitely, you know, we have what we call the enterprise list. Enterprise is a very newspapery word. Um, mm-hmm. And we have stuff on there that stretches all the way, you know, through October. Big projects that we know are coming, stories we know we're going to do. We put them on the schedule so we have them recorded somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and some editors are already working on that stuff. And a lot of our cooking projects land on that list because, you know, you've got a lot of recipe development to do. We're trying to shoot beautiful photography. We're shooting video. So those are longer lead projects. But in terms of the stories that are that you read on nytimes.com, you know, you know, we might be working on those a few weeks in advance. <laughs> Let's say we have a right. lot of stuff on the list. You know, something might run six, eight weeks later. But that's kind of the limit. That's kind of the mm-hmm. limit. Um, and also, I should say, you know, we're also part of a news organization. If something happens today, like right. we'll publish a story about it. Um, yeah. I just read. Have, um, yeah. I mean, when Kim Severson was covering the Mario Batali trial, that was really great. How on top of it she was just like immediately. Yeah. It almost felt like, I mean, Kim is the good dream reporter for an editor. And one reason is that, you know, she can do very complicated stories pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a remarkable skill born out of experience. Um, and she's, great at those and she's brilliant at all kinds of other things too um she's mm-hmm. remarkable well i guess my first question in terms of you know the, the topic at hand has to do with the newsworthiness of food because like mm-hmm. i was just reading through the food section and um like to me there are certain articles where it's like yes of course like this feels like news like i was reading about the exhibit um here in la about the the jewish deli and it's like um you know that's happening that's that's a newsworthy story so it seems like you know that that's a no brainer like here's the story but for me where it gets trickier is like you know somebody pitches you an ar- article about rhubarb or pitches <laughs> you an article about you know um roast ham or something you know it's like what makes that newsworthy and that's where i get tripped up because I don't quite understand that part of it. You know, it's not so much that we're looking for newsworthiness when you think about cooking-based stories, but you mm-hmm. are looking for the right match of idea to point in time. So mm-hmm. rhubarb, of course, at least in the Northeast, is a spring story, um, right. you know, in my mind. And although our readers are all over the world, um, Sometimes it's hard to break out of that mentality. Yeah. And we do have quite a lot of readers, you know, in the Northeast. Um, 
Um, and ham, you know, I generally think of, you know, ham is really a holiday story and that could be right. December holidays. That could be Easter. You know, mm-hmm. we only have so many great ham ideas so you really <laughs> save them for, yeah. for the moments. Um, I would say it's more that I'm looking for, um, an idea or an angle on the story I haven't, I haven't exactly read before. Mm-hmm. And that can take many forms. Um, you know, it can take many forms and it doesn't have to be news. You know, we don't have to have a statistic about ham sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes so we do what, have a statistic about ham sales and that's great. But, um, but it's it. more so, about yeah. like, what's the lens on the idea? You know, mm-hmm. and what, what is the way into the story? Well, I think that's what makes Melissa Clark's stuff so great is because, you know, she's writing about seasonal recipes um, that have to do with what's happening in that moment, you know, food wise, but but she always kind of weaves it into something personal, like the sandwich that she brought to the opera, I think was one that feels very yeah. specific to her. Um, and it almost feels like you have your stable of of personalities that are you know eric kim is in there right now and just people who now we get to know them and their stories and so their take on a recipe becomes reliable in a way that it's like a friend or a family member is sharing something so that makes sense to me yeah and you know they're they're um two of our columnists we have a handful of of columnists who are devoted to home cooking um eric happens to be part of the rotation for the new york times magazine for the e-column Melissa's mm-hmm. column, you know, is technically part of food. The same team edits all of them. My team edits all of it, all the food uh-huh. stuff. Um, um, uh, and the idea is to to give writers a space to to use their voice, but and also frankly to just build that relationship that you just talked about, and mm-hmm. to have that be a sort of rhythm, you know, in mm-hmm. the work that we publish. So, in terms of um, like wanting to be digitally relevant, but also create good newspaper content. I mean, I say this as a former blogger who would always try to come up with the most viral ideas for recipes. And occasionally it would happen. It never happened when I tried to make it happen. It always just randomly happened. But how much are you thinking about how something is going to play on the internet versus how something is going to play in the newspaper? We're really focused on on the digital operations. I mean, we also make this world-class newspaper. It'd be crazy enough to think about it, but you know, principally, <laughs> I, I am thinking about our digital audience. I mean, and that is really what it means to be digital first. I think at the Times, mm-hmm. um, you can't predict what will be viral. It doesn't right. really work, or at mm-hmm. least I've never seen it work. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe there is somewhere one out there that can do it. Um, but if you, it's sort of one of those things where if you try too hard to do it, like you'll not succeed (laughs) when michael jackson died i made michael jackson glove cookies and that was not successful and also before all the (laughs) documentary stuff came out so yeah Yeah. there's some like cosmic rule there um uh you i do you know you know i think we're just looking for interesting dynamic work that we think will connect with an audience and it doesn't have to be Hmm. like everybody in the audience you know like I think right. a, a lot of stories have different readers and that's okay. And mm-hmm. you just want to make sure you're doing really, really great work. Um, and that you think it'll spark some curiosity because really mm-hmm. what you want people to do is stop and click and read your story. And mm-hmm. that is hard. 
right? Yeah. There is a lot of noise. That is hard. So for us, it's about like finding those ideas, finding the smart take, writing the headline that's going to get people to read a little bit more. Well, I want to ask you all about your career and maybe do like a little side road down that path and then come back to pitching because I know ultimately, you know, that's what this is about. But how did you get your start? Where did where was your way into the the food world? Kind of wacky. Um, so I, um, I ha- got really interested in food, um, you know, after I graduated from college. I guess I had always loved food as a kid, mm-hmm. um, but my parents didn't cook at all. Like we ate nothing special at home. I do not yeah. have a story about cooking with my grandmother. My grandma was actually a pretty good cook, but like, uh-huh. I'm not, I just have none of that. And, but Same, I, I by the way, really, yeah. <laughs> I did really, really want to learn yeah. how to cook. And, um, and I got really interested in food. And for me, at first, it was restaurants. It was restaurants mm-hmm. in New York. And this was around the time that Eater and Grub Street were launching and picking up steam. And, and so there was a lot of energy there. Oh, yeah. um, and I uh, had done an MFA. I have an MFA in nonfiction writing. And I really needed a freelance job while I finished my master's thesis, just something Mm -hmm. like hourly. And I had been a copy editor and a fact checker before. And so I had these skills and I I don't even know if this is true anymore, but back then you could get freelance work at publications if you had those skills. Mm -hmm. So I'd had those skills and I ran into an old friend of mine who's now a cookbook author, um, JJ Good. But at the time he was working at Epicurious and he had heard about some fact checking job at the New York times. And I assumed it must be for the New York times magazine. Cause like who else fact checks at the times? It's not really a newspaper <laughs> thing. Um, but it turned out to be for the food section and it was fact checking the restaurant listings database. So not, hmm. so like the little capsules and the address and the phone number, they needed somebody to go through every entry they had. It was like a printout of an Excel doc, like this big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like, oh, wow. Yeah, it's like maybe <laughs> four inches high. It was crazy. Okay. Crazy. It was like a whole ream of paper. And um and um see which ones were open, which ones are closed, which ones were just like so incredibly wrong they had to be rewritten, which ones could be lightly edited, you know. So that was my I I applied for that job, I got it, and that was my mm-hmm. freelance job. And I was working in the food section at the Times. Never crossed my mind that that would happen in my life. And I wow. just immediately loved it and was like, okay, this is this is really great. I I want to stay. <laughs> I want to stay. <laughs> and what, what really era was that? And, and hopefully was I will it, get to stay. <laughs> was that during Frank Bruni's time as the food critic? Like who was the food critic then? Um, so Frank Bruni was the food critic. Um, Pete Wells was the editor of the section. Mm -hmm. So now Pete Wells is the critic and um, has moved on to do all kinds of other things. Um, But, um, you know, Julia Moskin and Kim Severson were there, Mm -hmm. you know, they were the reporters. Um, So some, some people who are still with us, some people who are gone, the staff is huge now. It's it's so much bigger than it ever was in those days. Um, Mm -hmm. A fun thing was that the times now has this um, like skyscraper in Midtown. And very modern, but mm-hmm. I started right before they left the old building. So I got to see the old building, which was like a newsroom from the movies. Really? And <laughs> it was really cool. Yeah, it was it was really fun to be there. And you really felt like you were 
at the paper, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And even though I had not thought about trying to work in food at the New York times, like I had totally dreamed of working at a place like the New York times. I mean, in my mind's eye, it was probably more like the magazine because I had this, you know, I was writing what we now call long form to go Mm -hmm. then. Um, (laughs) But, you know, so it was, it was really exciting to be there. So it's funny because I have an MFA in playwriting and it's, it is funny how many MFA people end up in food writing. Cause even Melissa Clark, I know, got her MFA mm-hmm. in fiction writing. So it, it's, it's useful after all. <laughs> she and I turns out went to the same program. I mean, like not, not at the same time, but we actually went mm-hmm. to the same program. Oh yeah. Um, That's funny. Yeah. No. So you know all about the whole MFA thing. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, how, what, what do I do professionally? <laughs> exactly. I'm still trying to figure that out. My parents are still wondering what I'm doing with my life, but uh, <laughs> I'm doing this. This is something. So, well, I mean, there's so many, this opens so many avenues. I guess, like, since I brought up food critics, I, I guess as an editor, I mean, how much of the um, star system and the rules about, like, you know, because I know that that just changed recently because I know that Pete Wells reviewed a place and was it in the Bronx or um, mm-hmm. yeah, and, the, and a, it was like a street cart um, and gave it three stars. Is that right? It's not a cart. It's technically um, it's a trailer mm-hmm. um, and it's only open on the weekends, but it's sort of, it, you know, it's parked there. Um, right. But yeah, in the in the South Bronx. And yes, he gave it three stars. He so told that, me that, this is yeah. a three star restaurant. And I was like, great. <laughs> <That's> great. Because <laughs> in the old days, I mean, I, I know that Ruth Reichel wrote about Pete doing that. And she referenced Brian Miller, who was the critic before her, who didn't like it when she reviewed what were called then, quote unquote, ethnic restaurants. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's come a long way. And I'm curious, like, as an editor, I mean, is, is this a conversation you're having around the table like can we do this will we do this or is it like sure why not <laughs> um i felt pretty clear that we could do it i mean certainly i don't unilaterally unilaterally decide anything right. you know i was talking a lot with patrick farrell who's a brilliant editor and, and pete's editor and one of our deputies and i was talking with patrick and with pete about hey you know what are we going to do what's what's the first restaurant going to be? What's the second restaurant? You know, Pete was eating around and trying to make a great lineup. Um, mm-hmm. And he was really excited. Um, um, he was really excited about it. And um, I thought wrote about why that place was special. So beautifully. It was so mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, you know, I, I've never met Brian Miller. I I'm way after the Brian Miller era, but I have uh-huh. a tattoo that he, he would hate those reviews when he saw them in the mm-hmm. paper later. And, um, you know, I was thinking of like other times food personalities who are mm-hmm. still lurking out there from the eighties who are like, this and like oh yeah care. i mean I me, me, mimi sheridan used to be a commenter <laughs> on eater she would have a lot to say about all that stuff yeah i did think of <laughs> mimi and i was like oh mimi's so pissed but you know that's, <laughs> I, <laughs> I i i just felt that it was great i don't know it's great like why right deny it it's three stars i mean you know he just given um stars Uh, to all kinds of establishments, including, you know, food trucks. This is probably like technically the first trailer, Mm -hmm. but he's definitely (laughs) given stars before it's just one or one or two. And two, I have to say, I think this kind of gets lost in the conversation. Two is like a very, very good star rating. Um, 
but this this was um, uh, this this was special, and I think it speaks to how special the place is. What what Pete said to me, and this was a line that actually eventually ended up in the review, which is, um, you know, this place packs more joy into two days that most restaurants pack into a week. Wow, um, I like that. It's pretty pretty cool. So. I guess a question that occurred to me as you were just talking about all this is like, it seems like Pete probably has a lot of leeway to do what he wants in terms of giving stars. So is there ever a moment where an editor such as yourself intervenes and says, uh, I don't know about this, Pete, or maybe this is a little harsh. I mean, with the 11 Madison Park review, that was like a pretty intense and news I'm talking about newsworthy. I mean, that, that was everywhere when he kind of tore it apart. I mean, for lack of a better word. Um, right. so, how, so, so do the, do editors intervene at all with the, with the food criticism or is it mostly just like editing, you know, the, the paragraph to paragraph? No, I, I would not dream of interfering. I, I suppose there is some scenario that would lead me to do it. <laughs> I, we're just like so far away from that territory. Right. And, and I, I sincerely doubt Patrick does either. I mean, Pete, Pete is a brilliant critic and, you know, he needs to be free to Mm -hmm. go eat the food. We don't tell him where to go eat. You know, he tells us where he's eating. He basically tells us what the lineup is. You know, we don't, Mm -hmm. we're not like, well, let's do this one first. You know, like he's, he's pretty much got his thing. And, um, I can't, I can't imagine telling him like, "Mm, that seems like more of a one star. It's just like so totally outside of, (laughs) <laughs> what I would do. Um, Got it. Um, I will say too, it like I, it, I don't get the sense it brings him like any joy at all to give terrible reviews. Yeah. Um, I think it weighs on him really heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes them so well, and he's so funny yeah. that I can see why people might think he's like delighting and sharpening the knives. But mm-hmm. having spoken with him about it, it, it just really seems to me that he does not take a drop of pleasure in it i'm um, sure i mean it's, it's i mean yeah. you're, he's actually like responsible in a weird way i mean for people's careers and other people's jobs so it's a lot of responsibility but i do think there seems like there's an unspoken rule that he doesn't ever seem to give a bad review to a small establishment or like a family <laughs> yeah. like run mom and pop place or something you know i mean what's the point of that you know like right. to, to go out of your way to to shine a spotlight on that place and then yeah. it's horrible. I mean, he really, you know, and I can't a hundred percent speak for him on this one. I mean, maybe he would phrase this a little differently, but my take on it is that he's really looking for places that are well known. They, they tend to be uh, more expensive. So he's thinking mm-hmm. about like, okay, you've left per se mm-hmm. and you're out at least a thousand dollars. Like, was that a great meal? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he really, he really does save it, um, you know, for moments where it's like, this just is not adding up. This is not working. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine he would ever, you know, go out and give a horrible review to a place that is not like incredibly well known to the dining public. Well, okay, you answered all my gossipy questions about the, the food criticism. <laughs> but now I want to learn more about what you do every day. I think I think people would love to hear 
a day in the life of Emily Weinstein. So maybe like walk us through a day of being on the job. Sure. Um, so um, a day on the job, it's a mix of a lot of different things. Um, and I would say I um, read a lot of stories. I'm, you know, I'm, I run our department now, so I'm no longer really the first editor on stories. I'm no longer like getting in there and doing the line editing, but but I do try to to read everything before it goes out the door and mm-hmm. um, and love doing that. So I'm I'm reading stories. I'm, you know, convening different editors on my team to kind of understand what they're up to and how projects they're working on are going. I go to like a ton of meetings, so many meetings. Um, some of them are related uh, more to the news um, and food part of the operation. Some of them are really purely about NYC cooking the product. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as, as the editor of the product, I'm involved in the leadership meetings. Um, so it's like a little bit of everything. I would say my day generally starts with me just sort of catching up on email and catching up on the news. I, I you know, I read the news mm-hmm. every morning um, mm-hmm. and um, I dial into the main New York Times morning news meeting. Um, I, there's it used to be called the page one meeting. There's a documentary called page one. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen it. But that's have, the meeting yeah. where all the top editors, you know, gather to discuss the news of the day. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing to sit in that meeting. I mean, to hear people talking about news as it develops and how they're thinking about covering it and what they think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And these are, you know, this is the editor of the reporters who are like out there in Congress, you know, or, or they're mm-hmm. or they're covering the White House or whatever it is. So, um, pretty amazing. Um, we have a daily staff meeting just for the the food and cooking editorial team. Um, we gather every morning just to check in, see what's going on. Um, once a week, we have a big brainstorm, which is really fun. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we gather on Mondays. Also, I got out of this meeting earlier to look at the art, all the art for the week ahead for everything we're going to publish, so everyone can mm-hmm. see what's coming down the pipe we know what's publishing on our youtube channel you know it's like this and that and all over the place um there's a lot you know, yeah you have a lot to juggle yeah uh yeah yeah but it's part of it you know it's it's the gig it's really really fun um mm-hmm. um you know and, and also i just talk to a lot of people one-on-one or i try to you know whether those are freelance writers um, and to get a sense of them and to spend some time with them or, you know, catching up with, with our staff. Um, I really also try to check in with people um, and see what they're working on and how they're doing. And are you going into the office now again, or are you working from home? Well, right now I'm at home, um, okay. but uh, I've been going to the office like pretty much, let's say average twice a week all through the spring, mm-hmm. definitely reduce that. Um, you know, when variants are on the rise, you know, I I very much sort of am looking at what's going on with COVID numbers. Um, Mm -hmm. We are not mandated to go back to the office yet. Um, In the fall right now is the return to office date where we will be expected to go back three days a week. So I imagine that is what I will be doing three days a week at the office. Um, Well, I'm curious when you were talking about the page one meeting, I mean, there have been moments where the food section ends up on page one. And the first thing that immediately comes to mind is the Mario Batali case. And so how does a story like that begin? Um, Because that's a big, you know, story. And uh, does that begin at a meeting? And, and what are the legal 
liabilities, I guess. I mean, is that part of it? Like, if we're going to go out there and write about this, um, are we putting ourselves, are we exposing ourselves to lawsuits? Or how does that all work? I mean, investigations at the Times is, is like a big, complex, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's actually a whole investigations department. And, and we now run investigations, too, within food. Um, mm-hmm. But like, for instance, um, the Harvey Weinstein investigation came out of like the investigations specific team, Jody Canner and Megan Toohey were the reporters. Um, um, but no, but so, but we also have food reporters doing investigations. Um, you know, I can say generally speaking, um, you know, usually one of our reporters speaks with somebody or gets a tip or they sort of start becoming aware of the situation, mm-hmm. right? Are we going to look into it? What might that mean? You know, it takes, and I'm not an expert, honestly, in editing investigations, um, mm-hmm. but it takes an enormous amount of time and care um, because the Times has a pretty high threshold in terms of the accusations it'll print mm-hmm. and whether or not people are anonymous. They really don't want a lot of anonymous sources in those stories. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they really need for people journalistically to go on the record. So a lot of it is about, first of all, actually doing the reporting and just finding people to speak with you um, in a candid way, but also creating a circumstance in which they feel comfortable going on the record, because in order to publish a strong story, you need a certain number of people on the record. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have to say too, one of the best books I've actually read about how to conduct an investigation is the story about the uh, Harvey Weinstein investigation. It's called She Fed. Mm. was turned into okay. a book and now the book's becoming a movie. Um, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I think the trailer is yeah. out already. So that's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool beat by beat, like how you how an investigation comes together. Well, I guess I'm, I'm curious, though, in terms of editing the food section, like it seems right now in our climate in the after the Me Too movement started, like especially on Eater, speaking of Eater, like it's like there's still this continuing trend of reporting on the bad behavior of chefs. And I guess, is there a threshold in terms of how much the New York Times food section wants to write about that? Um, you know, because it seems like I'm sure if you wanted to, you could find abusive chefs like just by like knocking on any random door, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, so we're like everyone constrained by resources. Like you really can only write and publish so many stories. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we're pretty committed, you know, when we have that information and it makes sense, and, you know, when we decide to move forward on a story, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, we're going to try to do it. We're going to try to run with it. And I don't think we're going to hit a quota. I, I do think it's sort of tempting to become a little cynical and be like, well, it's just another toxic kitchen story, blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and, and you have to try to resist that. Um, right. And I think there's going to be a lot more reporting from a bunch of different outlets about that kind of behavior. Um, it was just endemic. Um, it is endemic. I shouldn't say it was. It is endemic. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if, if we have good information and we feel we can um, execute on a story, um, we're going to do it. Well, in a more fun uh, line of questioning, I wanted to ask you about uh, one of the most uh, talked about aspects of New York Times cooking, which is the commenters, because there's (laughs) there's even like an Instagram called like New York Times cooking comments. um, And 
you have some passionate commenters out there. And I guess I'm curious, do you factor any of that in? Like if people are outraged about a recipe? I mean, I know, I mean, Melissa, talk about Melissa Clark, like pea, wa- peas and guacamole. Like that was, <laughs> that became like the president even spoke about it, right? I mean, that was like a huge yeah. thing. So how do you, how much do you integrate feedback into the work that you do? Um, first of all, I love the commenters and <laughs> Even more, I love how much people love the commenters. (laughs) Yeah, they're Um, hilarious. The brownie um, one that was in one of your videos recently. That that somebody like, oh yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but the Catherine. No, the brownie brownie. one is like actually, I think the best one of all time. Like, yeah, can't. I've not seen it topped. Yeah, people need to look it up. It's great. (laughs) Yeah, the recipe is called Catherine Hepburn brownies. NYT cooking. I'm. Can't imagine that comment hasn't been upvoted to like the top. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm ever. sure it is. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, so um, I we let me put the all right. So if people are just like outraged on the internet about something you've done, and you look at it, you look at the thing, and you think, okay, well, was this inappropriate? Was this unfair? Was this out of context, you know, all those normal things. You don't even think about that. But if it's just that people hate something, it's like, mm-hmm. well, they hate it. I mean, let's move on, you know? Right. Um, we're not going to get it right 100% of the time. We're very aware of our failings. Um, mm-hmm. um, I will say the moment it really matters is when I see in recipe comments or when one of my colleagues sees that people are saying, I think something is wrong. I think mm. a measurement is wrong. I think a cook time is wrong. And it doesn't necessarily mean it was a typo on our end. It might have just been something that in development and testing, it worked. It did not work once it was out in the world. You know, mm. and, and we do actually look at those. Sometimes we even retest them. We'll make updates. You know, we very much see NYT cooking as a living archive. We don't want anything there frozen in amber. And, you know, if we see and, you know, we don't want to mess with people's work in the past needlessly Mm -hmm. but if we see something that we believe needs to be corrected in order for people to get good outcomes from the recipe then yeah we will definitely go fix it and how much of your job is eating i mean are you going to the test kitchens and trying all the different things and saying this is great this needs more salt oh my god i wish more (laughs) of my job were that um so we have a studio kitchen but Mm -hmm. we don't have like a test kitchen where people are actually working to develop the recipes um People we were people are doing that in their home kitchens. Um, okay. And I should say, you know, that's a lot of people, you know, because we have a whole um, freelance testing operation. Um, we have a lot of freelance recipe developers. Um, you know, I think I said earlier, we don't have room for a lot of freelancers because of staff. I think that applies a little bit more to food. And my two cooking, we use a ton of freelancers and we love freelancers. So I want to clarify okay. that. Um um what was i saying um about tasting food how much food tasting do you food eat? yeah so that's all happening <laughs> in people's homes so uh, when i was okay. at the office people would sometimes bring things in you know if it was mm-hmm. easy to bring them in and we would all gather around and eat and that was really fun um but no it's really decentralized i spend a lot of time cooking from nyt cooking mm-hmm. you know to see what the recipes are like yeah. and because i actually really trust it as a source i know like i'm you know, it sounds like I'm just shilling and like, but I actually am like an NYT cooking power user. I use it constantly. 
I use it all the time too. And it's crazy now. I mean, I used to make my living like by trying to game Google and like have a top search result. But now if I search, I mean, I literally was just searching something yesterday. I forget what, but, and like the top results are pretty terrible these days. It's like the things that come up are just like, what are these? Like, whose recipes are these? And so I actually have to go, you know, I use the app and I just go in there and I, I also use Smitten Kitchen, but it, it seems like having a curated um, group of recipes now is actually very valuable in this like crazy wilderness of the internet. So um, I'm a fan too. <laughs> I hope so, you know, I mean, and we really see that as part of our, our like value proposition. It's like, mm-hmm. we're going to tell you what we think are like the best three ways to use this ingredient or use or mm-hmm. this dish or like, you know, we really invest a lot in that mm-hmm. testing and development process. I mean, those recipes are really tested and edited. Um, um, oh, sorry. I have two kids. Thank you very much. I, yeah, I, I have two <laughs> kids under the age of five. So, oh, wow. See, I mean, I had no idea. You make it, you make it look so easy. Um, well, I don't want to hold you up too much, but now I, I do want to get into the pitching of it all so we can definitely like cover that. Um, so, okay. Let's say my name is Adam Roberts and I'm writing an email to Emily Weinstein. And I like my goal is to like have you be like, ah, like this is great. Like I want to publish this. Like what are some of the qualities? Like what what's an example, I guess, of a great pitch that you've received recently that you immediately we're like, I love this story. Is that too hard? I I don't want to put you on the spot. Yeah. I have gotten great pitches recently and have assigned them. And I know my colleagues have assigned them. I can't think of like a one specific one to tell you. Um, I would say when I get excited about a pitch, it's something we, um, you know, the pitch is usually like not too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> and helpful. It's, and it's okay. written, it's written like, it's written in a way where I really get a sense of that person's um, writing style. Okay. And also, you know, it's sort of like that thing with a resume that like you should always like check your resume to make sure that you don't have any typos are on there. You know? uh, okay. I, I'm not like reading pitch emails closely like for typos, but some people definitely don't you know, they write those emails so informally, there's like no Mm -hmm. punctuation or, you know, and, and, you know, like, on the one hand, I totally get that. But on the other hand, like, I am sort of looking to see where people are as, you know, professional writers. I mean, this is like, Mm -hmm. this is like an exchange between like a professional writer and a publication, right? Right. So kind of looking to see where people are. um, And, um, you know, mostly, I'm just looking for like, a story I really want to read that I haven't necessarily read before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, has that person demonstrated that they have like the big idea and mm-hmm. they have a few sources that they're already going to talk to, you know, we're looking also for people who have some reporting experience. Um, right. You know, we always so we're talking about, that. 
we're talking about it. So it sounds like what you're talking about is journalism, right? I mean, you're talking about like a story, like this is a story about a chef whose family is stuck in Europe and can't come back. And he's trying to make all the same food that his parents, maybe things like that, like where it's like some journalistic as opposed yeah, to, you have to yeah. call people and interview them, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, right. and those are, those are skills, you know, and that's, a, and that's a craft and it's all entirely learnable, but mm-hmm. they do have to, you know, learned um you know to write Um, but what about the kind of stories like the the eric kim's or the melissa clark columnist kind of stuff where it's like you know i have a recipe for thanksgiving stuffing that my ancestors brought over on the mayflower or i mean whatever just that doesn't make sense but (laughs) (laughs) i mean eric um i hope if he ever hears this that that's going to embarrass him but like eric Eric was somebody when he sent us freelance pitches and I, he sent them full, you know, um, and I mm-hmm. got pitches from him and I was really blown away by his writing. Um, mm-hmm. Eric has a very distinct um, writing voice and he's just an extraordinary writer. Um, mm-hmm. And um, like right off the bat, I was like, Oh, this this person's an amazing writer and um, got it. Okay. And like, so that's in the really, pitch. Yeah. it's really exciting. And, yeah. you know, he was wanting to write personal stories related to home cooking. Um, mm-hmm. But he had a way of describing the way he wanted to write about kimchi. The first story I believe we assigned was, was kimchi story. And um, you know, his, the way he framed it in that email, I was like, this is great. Like, mm-hmm. you know, He's going to do a really good job. He's a beautiful writer. Like he has a take on this that I haven't exactly, you know, we've, we've not published a story like this with this exact take before, um, mm-hmm. you know, and um, he had recipe development experience, which of course, you know, we're also looking for somebody mm-hmm. who has that um, skill set and, you know, and then one thing led to another and then he wrote another story because he had another, you know, another way of thinking about it. I will say that it does always catch my attention when somebody in their pitch email kind of suggests the headline for the story because mm, they're okay. basically kind of making the same pitch to me that ultimately we would be making to readers. It's like, hey, that's you great. You know, that's very so helpful. Somebody who has like a really sharp sense of language and and um, connecting the idea of a story to a reader. You know, we're always we're always looking for that. Well, um, um, and of course, Eric uh, went on to write for us all the time. Eric, Eric is yeah. actually on staff now. He's great. I mean, I love his writing, so I totally get that. I guess um, I'm wondering, and, and this isn't just me being neurotic, but I'm sure this is a real question, which is like, how much is too much in terms of pitching? Like, do you get emails from, <laughs> from the same people? I mean, I'm sure you get people pitching you over and over and over again. And are you ever like, okay, you know, calm down, like, <laughs> <laughs> stop harassing no, me. Really, um, um, you know, I, no, I don't feel that way at all. I mean, and gradually, and eventually they'll probably get a story published, right? And um, mm-hmm. no, I really want people f- to feel like they can send. I always want to see good ideas. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and, and like there have been times over the past several years where we were so overbooked that like mm-hmm. we really couldn't assign anything else. Like it just wouldn't run for a really long time. And I'd say, mm-hmm. hey, we're really, we're really overbooked, but I really always love to see good ideas. And that is the truth. And I would never take a 
freelance pitched idea and assign it to somebody else. I would never do that. So it's just mm-hmm. sort of in the spirit of like, hey, send me your idea. Send me what you're thinking about. I would hate to discourage people from doing that. Like I read, you know, unless something gets by me, which, you know, can happen. Like I read all of them and okay. sometimes I'm not able to respond, but I really try to respond to all of them. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I want people to feel like they can reach out, um, which they totally can. Um, that's great. And that's how you find, that's how you find that person like Eric, mm-hmm. who's an incandescent writer and like right. has great ideas and, you know, is really dynamic and is working hard at his craft. Um, you know, that's just, that's the beginning of those kinds of relationships, you know? And there are definitely people who like the first few times they pitched it, like didn't work out, but then we hit on something and like mm-hmm. they were off to the races. So, okay. Well, this is very encouraging. Now I feel, now I feel less neurotic <laughs> about pitching. Uh, I mean, I had, I had a good experience pitching to the Washington post last year about a post COVID dinner party. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just, I had never had a newspaper article published before, but I, I just had that idea and I, I knew the editor a little bit. And so I, on a lark, I was just like, you know, how to host a post-COVID dinner party. And then I just pitched it. And to your point about the headline, I think it just made it sort of clear, like, okay, like, this is what this is. This is why it's timely. I guess timeliness is probably important. Um, and then, yeah, I got lucky. But I, yeah, what were you going to say? Yeah. And, you know, there are publications that use so many freelancers that, like, mm-hmm. it's definitely worth pitching them a lot. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for any else but yeah you know um i think that that um you know i think i and i i was a freelancer a really long time ago but i remember and and the, the, i will say the landscape was really very very different back then mm-hmm. but i remember really reading and and trying to study what kinds of publications might want this kind of story what might that kind of story and like mm-hmm. if i had a pitch and it was rejected one place how do you adjust it for somebody else. I think editors are also like trying to get a sense of like, Hey, does this person know what kind of work we do Mm -hmm. and what we might be looking for? Um, You know, like if we don't publish a lot of first person essays or we only publish first person essays, you know, just to to get a sense of, of, of of what you're, (laughs) what you're aiming for um, how you present your ideas. Uh, well, this was, I mean, you, this is just great information. So thank you for that. I mean, I guess as like a way to end, I mean, I want to know a little bit more about, you talked about how incandescent Eric's writing was, but like, who are the food writers just historically or just like on your shelf behind you, like that you are, have, have influenced you that for people who are listening, who maybe want to read the great books or, or read some great food writing that um, would be good, good model for that. I mean, there are a lot of amazing writers and I don't want to single out anyone I worked with or might work with or whatever. But, um, in terms of, um, all, you know, in terms of like stretching into the past too. Yeah. I really love Lori Cohen's writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I just read her for the first time. I read home cooking. It was great. It's wonderful. It's so direct. It's so like a specific person is talking to you about cooking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I love that. I mean, it rises and falls like on the quality of that person's writing. Right. And she was like mm-hmm. a fantastic writer, but it's so, 
it's just such a wonderful book. And she's so clear about her opinions, which, Mm -hmm. you know, which really works in that context. And I love Lori Cole and I would recommend that to anybody who's interesting and interested in really becoming an essayist and writing about food. That's great. Yeah. I mean, there, there is something like kind of deceptive about her writing because it, it seems very easy like, or simple, but it, 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 it contains a lot of depth, which, um, yeah. Uh, well, I guess as, as a very final question, um, is there anything else? You, you mentioned the uh, spelling errors in, in pitches being a pet <laughs> peeve. Are there, are there any other pet peeves about pitches that, that bother you or is that the main one? a spelling error here or there it's just like if the pitch if like none of the sentences have punctuation or like none of the sentences are grammatically you know there's just like a level of professionalism you kind of hope to see um Mm -hmm. um, uh i would say um i have on a few occasions been like read a pitch and be like oh i like i don't know very much about that which like is usually like kind of I'm like, I'm interested in things that I don't know very yeah. much about and I'll go and I'll Google it. And then I'll realize that it's been cut and pasted from like Wikipedia. <gasps> what? Who like, would do that? Yeah. And you know, oh, the crazy no. thing is that like, that doesn't like, that's not like automatically disqualifying, but it does sort of feel like if you're explaining to people, this has happened, this, ha- this has happened multiple times, but like, okay. it does sort of, you're sort of feeling like, well, it's not that great to explain to a reporter why they shouldn't cut and paste from Wikipedia. Like, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But so I, don't do that. Is, yeah. is, like the crazy part is that it's not actually disqualifying, but it is like a moment of like, huh. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's good. I mean, that's funny because it's like, it seems obvious, but I guess for some people it's like, oh, she'll never know. Hey, the reality is that like we get pitches from people at like really different points in their career. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of cool. And like, we do bring in freelancers who are more towards the beginning of their career and we work okay. with them over time. Um, and like they learn, you know, and that's <laughs> fine. But it, that is a moment where you're like, okay, like I have a sense of what's happening here. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay, good. That's good advice. Okay, my final, final, final question. Okay, this sure. is kind of just a, fu- a funny one. Like when when ending the pitch email, is it best comma your name? Is it thanks comma your name? Is it uh, talk soon exclamation point? I mean, is, do you do, what's, what do you recommend? Oh my gosh, I think of whatever feels <laughs> organic to you. It's like so totally not what I'm focused on. I really just want to know yeah. people's ideas and what they're excited about. And got it. <laughs> Don't I'm overthink that. Sign up. Person. Okay, I'm all the best. best person. Got it. Okay, some, that's good. Some people do all the best. I've seen a few mm. of my best. Oh, you know, okay. I see this is good to have it. Thing. Yeah. Cheers always feels to me like we're at a pub. Cheers, which like I'm totally fine with that, but it's not my personal thing. Uh-huh, anyway, uh-huh. I'm good with whatever is what I'm saying. I'm not I'm not actually I'm a little concerned that I made myself sound really particular with the typos, but I actually not no. like super focused on that. I really just want to find people who I think um, are going to bring a lot to the times through the stories mm-hmm. I want to tell and like well, what those stories are. So like, I'm going to like look, you know, <laughs> you can think about that in like kind of an expansive way, you know? 
I love that. And that's a great note to end on. So Emily, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. This was a great talk. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Email me anytime. (laughs) Okay. Be careful what you wish for. I I won't be copying any Wikipedia entries and I will not sign it cheers just because I don't, you know, we're not at brunch. All right. Well, thanks again and have a good rest of your day. No, you too. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please go over to Apple Podcasts, look up the Amateur Gourmet Podcast and write a nice review that really helps. And be sure to share this on social media if you like the talk. If you didn't like it, you don't have to share it. And if you don't follow me already, give me a follow at Amateur Gourmet on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok. And subscribe to my newsletter, amateurgourmet.substack.com. All right. I'll see you back here next week. Have a good one.